Welcome to the podcast Art and Extractivism, a project of hyenas. I'm Kate, and I'm one half of hyenas. We're a duo working between sonics and performance. Our musical work is based in field recordings and interviews. In our second episode, we will continue with part two of our pilot of our bi-weekly reading group. The reading group meets every two weeks and is primarily geared towards freelance artists and non-academics who are interested in engaging with critical theory in their work or thinking about ideas discussed within critical theory circles, but don't generally have access to reading circles, books, and lectures, or the dedicated time or funding to do so. However, the reading group is open to everyone, and we would love to include a multitude of voices to complicate the real-world application of themes that are addressed throughout our reading. Here we are discussing a section of the book Freedom, Justice, and Decolonization by Lewis R. Gordon. To take part in a reading group, please visit our website, www.hyenas.com. Hyenas is spelled H-Y-E-N-A-Z. That's H-Y-E-N-A-Z for more information. We are in this art and extractivism process to think through how extractivist processes can happen in and throughout artistic processes. Um, For example, today I took a picture of a very beautiful vine of of, uh, ivy. It's not ivy, another another plant that winded up the brick wall. And I was thinking about how the definition of art is so expansive. Um, I don't think the definition of high art or commercial art is quite as expansive, but generally, you know, art as an umbrella is very expansive. And I was kind of looking at this and thinking, okay, this is an artwork in and of itself. And if I take a picture of it, it definitely becomes a kind of artwork. Even if I put it on Instagram and it becomes freely available more or less. And who do I credit? Do I credit the plants? Do I credit the gardener who created these perfect rows going up the brick? Do I credit the brick layer? Do I credit the architect of the building? Do I credit the software developers of the camera app I used, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the answer is yes. Um, but at the same time, um, what is you know what what are the implications of that, and how do we tread carefully as we engage in art, and what makes sense, and then how do we share? Obviously, naturally, what comes out of that is like how do we share the the wealth? If there is wealth to be made, and obviously somebody is making wealth off of it, so. I mean, if, right? I always think about that, and I think we could develop protocols. Um, around that kind of uh, acknowledgement and paying people. Um, but somehow I think it still leads us in the domain of kind of bureaucracy and still leads us in the domain of work um, um, uh, or labor kind of, which um, um, I think ultimately we would like to actually get outside of completely. Um, yeah. And that's much harder to imagine. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I think I, I've been thinking I could do everything right and still kind of be reproducing um, ultimately exploitative, alienating systems of labor. Right. Yeah. So, but I think it's, that's, that it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to, to take those steps. Um, 
because you have to start somewhere. Um, in our first session, we started with saying our name and our pronoun, a brief check-in to just arrive and why we're doing this practice. And I think it's good to kind of repeat this, why we're doing this practice to see if something's changed week by week, just to develop new language around what's our interest in this. Um, yeah, to get better at the, I get better at speaking about why it's important. Okay, thanks. So um, my name is Adrian. I use um, uh, feminine pronouns for myself. Um, I, yeah, I'm feeling pretty tired this week. Um, so, um, I am also feeling very, um, bleak with the chain of environmental catastrophes that have happened, that have come up this week. And, um, yeah, I, those things are kind of coalescing right now. Um, and it should make me feel urgently engaged in these questions, but somehow maybe it's actually driving me towards some apathy. I'm interested in art and extractivism because um, I'm interested in exploring the ways that our um, that um, physical processes around uh, exploitation of materials and exploitation of entities like rivers and um, landscapes, mountains, etc., um, how that um, if if there is an, and in what ways there are um, kind of um, uh, cons like, um, uh, let's like just in which ways they overlap with, with the way that human beings, um, are exploited in capitalism. Um, and if that relationship of overlapping is metaphorical, like it's just a kind of like alleg or an allegorical, um, so, you know, like it's, I feel like I'm a mine and I'm mining myself. So if that's, if that's, if it's allegorical, or if there are other, in addition to that, there are actually other ways in which it's not even something of a different order. Actually, it is, it is the same order. So, you know, I really, I am, I am a mine, uh, for instance, or, I, I, or, or, um, um, or the mine, um, um, the landscape uh, um, is being, uh, is, is having something stolen from, from, from them. Um, whether, yeah, whether it can actually be the same or whether that relationship is, is allegorical or metaphorical. Um, that's what I'm really curious about. Great. Thank you so much. Let's go into it. So I'm on page 131, and um, I think I would start with the interviewer, mm -hmm. Medina. Many of us have given up on the university as a failed modern institute of knowledge, production, and distribution. It seems that the shift in the geography of reasoning would come not from academics, philosophers, or any institutionalized intellectuals have long lost our impact on society. Rather, this shift would come from the fissures, interstices, and border spaces of negotiation, which have never been seen before as sites of knowledge production, from bottom-up social movements, from art, music, literature, etc. In your view, what are the ways, tools, and spaces for shifting the geography of reason, and who are its agents? Do you want to discuss the question, or should we go straight to the answer? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the question because I, I, I do, I'm curious about knowledge production and about the academy specifically, or so-called like academies, you know, institutes of higher education. Because, um, I mean, because like in a way, it's very ironic. Because like I'm reading two people who probably both have higher, so I don't know who's really lost 
space in the institution. Otherwise, none of us would give a shit. We wouldn't go get masters and PhDs. Um, so I don't know. It's like I think it's it, it feels in, disingenuous to like somehow engage with people who are like are writing theory, you know, and and like are able to say let's you know fuck the you know fuck the academy <laughs> or not, and yet still like have kind of been like well and here's my degree. Yeah, right, right. I I mean I think that maybe also they're just coming from the perspective of um um they went into academy because they really respect like they are excited about we're are or were excited about it and then have now discovered that it's not offering what they hoped it would and um perhaps it's exploiting them as well. Um so um let's go let's let's see what Lewis um Lewis Gordon's um yeah, I mean, again, lost lost our impact on society. So I guess maybe she's feeling Medina is feeling like she's doing all this work, she's talking to other academics, and yet it's not really having an impact. It's somehow kind of siloed away um, in a very kind of like specialized um, um, knowledge production factory that is somehow cut off from the world at large. Well, I mean, it is hard to understand. You know, it's like kind of comes back to why we're doing this reading group. Um, it's most theory. It's it's built on um, it's built on discourse, academic discourse, which, like everything else in this world, has accelerated to a kind of degree that it's like if you're out of school for one year, you're suddenly no longer able to speak the language because there's so many new words being talked about all the time you know it's like I, I can no longer think about the word happiness anymore without thinking of Sarah Ahmed and all and the knowledge production around that word and so you know anyone who's who's read Sarah is going to maybe be thinking about that in totally different way than people outside of that so it's not even about kind of complicated words or multi-syllable syllable words it's it's really about just a whole collection of knowledges and thinking and thoughts that that happen around around words that can only produce yeah. be produced in spaces that give them give people time to do that and to think yep. about it. And so, of course, it's siloed. Who has time for that? <laughs> only academics. Right. And even they, and even they profess not to have time for it. Right. Like, they're just so pushed. They're so pushed to the wall by the amount of teaching uh, marking that they have to do. Right. And other um, kinds of the fact that many. Yeah, and the fact that many of them don't, don't have it, actually are not employed by the university, so they don't actually have a job in the summer break. Right. Um, and they have to do other kinds of work. So, yeah, that sounds hellish, really. Yeah, really hellish. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope it goes without saying that this isn't about knocking people inside academia or anything at all. This is, uh, I mean, I'm coming probably from a state of jealousy, really, but, um, but just to point out, yeah. But it's it's very subjective this kind of positioning. Um, let's see what Lewis has to say. I reject zero sum arguments. Begins. The truth is we don't have advanced knowledge. We must strive to shift the geography of reason at every front. Intelligence and creativity are our greatest assets, and we should use them. There is no greater enemy than the mixture of stupidity and pride. I, as you know. I'm not a disciplinary nationalist. 
I also reject the idea of the university as the sole province of the production of knowledge. In fact, it is part of the market colonization of politics to corner knowledge producers through making the university their only site of production. It transforms producing knowledge from a calling and makes it exclusively into a job. At this point, the threat of unemployment becomes the surest way of closing off revolutionary thought. So yes, you're right. Shifting the geography of reason also requires shifting the geography of knowledge production. A shift, we should also bear in mind, does not mean abandonment. Academic knowledge has offered many gifts to our species, and at times, it has even saved other forms of life. Our mistake is to leave such a grand and perhaps sacred task only in the hands of the academy. Academics who truly wish to learn should continue to be students, which means they should seek learning wherever they, can, they could find it. This counsel applies to everyone in pursuit of knowledge, wisdom, and other forms of learning, which means they should transcend themselves. They should continue to grow. In my book, Disciplinary Decadence, what was, that was the argument I advanced. We should not fetishize ourselves, disciplines, and methods of learning. We should, we should be willing to go beyond them for the sake of things that matter things greater than ourselves, such as reality, and even, paradoxically, our love for each other, since love is not only an embrace, but also a letting go through a, through a profound respect and empathy for freedom. You know, like, I like that passage a lot. Me too. It's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is really beautiful. It made, made me um, actually a little bit uh, tear, teary-eyed uh, reading it. Um, yeah, uh, I agree with that. <laughs> I'm not sure what I can add to it. Yeah. I like that he's not knocking the, the university, but also contextualizing it as just one place where knowledge production can happen. And that, um, that um, he also points out really well um, how, the, how universities as kind of knowledge factories actually make people um, uh, abandon revolutionary um, thought because, um, because they have to could keep their job in that space. And then we could say, well, there's lots of, there's lots of radicals in the and even some of those ideas are quite popular and maybe have a kind of capital. But um, I think he might argue that, that modes of thought that are kind of just faddish, and faddish rad, radical and faddish are not necessarily revolutionary if they don't actually impact on the society outside of the, the institution. Yeah. I'll read on. Medina, to me, one of the main sensibilities of contemporaneity is the loss of the future dimensions on a global scale. This defuturing, to quote Tony Fry, is what we all share, and none of the contemporary political projects, ideologies, or philosophies seems to be able to offer an antidote for this futureless ontology. The sense of the lost future dimension is particularly acute in the post-Soviet countries that lost their radical utopian and forced progressivist vector overnight and were not offered any alternatives except going back to the end of the line and starting from scratch. Three decades later, this peculiar sensibility of the post-Soviet problem people who were bypassed by history is easily manipulated through various revanchist rev I don't know what that means. Do you know? I'll look it up. I, I've heard that word many times and never understood it. Revanchism is one who advocates or fights for the recovery of lost territory or status. So I know that there's, for example, like in Hungary, there's 
the greater Hungarian revanchists who were like, Hungary used to be much bigger and we lost our land in World War One and Two to the Slovaks and and whoever else and they want to get it back. So I guess that's a kind of revanchism. Okay. So it's easily manipulated through various revanchist pseudo-Soviet or pseudo-national projects, which once again look to the past and not to the future. What is your take on this issue? Do you think there is a future for this world? And what should be done to give the world back its future dimension or perhaps many intersecting future dimensions? So let's go into Lewis Gordon. And he says, this wonderful question pretty much summarizes my responses to the previous three questions. To it, I would add that you have identified a bad faith form of contemporaneity. It is the immediacy that collapses into the me, as I identified as part of the mentality of the right, and against which I voice concern as it is being adopted by elements of the left. It is bad faith because it requires lying to the self about return and immediacy and about what the issues are. Me, at the expense of all other all others, leads ultimately to failures of the self. We already know the script, since there is no instance of any right-wing regime being able to sustain itself beyond a few generations. This is because too many resources are required to block the aspirations of a meaning. Given today the amount of energy consumed by human beings closest to the centers of consumption, the proverbial writing is already on the wall. Should we Look at this for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to kind of turn back. So she's basically, I think she's sort of saying that, that like, this defuturism, just this, 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 this destruction of the future comes about through, like, a return to the and, um And then this past is not just, like, some sort of, like, neutral history. It's the, it's the history that gives one an identity. So, like, this is my past, my people, my land was stolen by by uh whatever my you know these kinds of things um Mm -hmm. and um in some contexts like um um it's it's interesting because like in in australia we see like the indigenous people have never recovered the land or sovereignty that was taken from them and um it's definitely a political project which i support um the recovery of land and sovereignty um for indigenous people um, but she, in uh, Medina um, Tlotsanova, in, in the pro-Soviet context, um, uh, is talking about in quite a negative light that there's these kind of nationalistic projects um, that, um, that return to the me, um, mm-hmm. which, we, which he identifies as the, as the me. So it's, uh, it becomes a kind of a mentality of the right, but also adopted by the left, he's saying. Um, and it requires lying to the self about return. So like, it's like, as if you can go back to it, to a time which is lost. Yeah. I mean, I think it's as if it's possible to go back to, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm interpreting this correctly, but that it's, it's as though it's possible to go back to a time where you could identify the I. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sort of, exactly. you know, a false kind of framing. Yeah. Or like argument to begin with. Yeah, and exactly. And I think that um, it's bad. It, that's why he calls it bad faith, I guess. Um, and then it's interesting. I don't know the connection yet, but maybe he makes it. Um, he says that right wing regimes are not able to sustain themselves beyond a few generations because resources are required to block the aspirations of a. 
life. I'm really curious what he's talking about there and how that connects to um, this um, this me-identified um, uh, revanchist politics. Maybe we should read on. Futurism is the false dilemma of utopia versus dystopia. It is the mantra of the character Killmonger in the movie The Black Panther, conquer or be conquered. That movie is also an allegory with this response. Why not find a way beyond conquest? A world without conquerors and conquered without conquering would not be a utopia. It would just be a better world. Here we come to another realization of shifting the geography of reason. Since it is in the present participle about doing, changing, and building, etc., it makes reason also about reasoning, which means it is never ideal, but instead about reasonability. Let's keep reading, because I think it's still developing the thought. Um, With regard to problem people, I see that as connected to the ongoing logic theodicy, where a god is rationalized as all good through making evil and injustice external to it. When it is secularized, it makes a society so, which means it it's blames its contradictions on those who suffer from it. And where the self becomes a god, same logic follows. Hmm. Yeah, the false... Okay, let's go, let's go back to the false dilemma of utopia versus dystopia. So this, he's saying that instead, we don't have like... We have a world without conquerors, which would not be a utopia, but better. And which should just be better, um, and it's about doing something. It's, 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 it's an active thing. It's not like a, it's not a, a state that we reach, like, and then we're there. It's about something we're constantly doing in every moment. Yes. Yeah, it's a process. Yes, exactly. I don't know about problem people, exactly why that's in inverted commas. Um, because it refers specifically to these people that she was speaking around um, three decades earlier, this per- peculiar sensibility of the post-Soviet, quote-unquote, problem people who were bypassed by history. So it's, I guess they're, I mean, I think it's not that they are a problem, but they, like, sort of, what do we do with these people? So so these are people who were were victims of the end of the Soviet project and then had the kind of, like, the whole kind of... historical like like they, they they became sort of outside of history in that moment because their history just ended yeah and so then they turned backwards to like some kind of national identity from a hundred years ago or something or some imagined which is interesting like it kind of reminds me of this some of the stuff that that i'm at plays within happiness which is a kind of around like happiness becomes a tautology where it's sort of it's defined by certain things which then create their own that you then create the desire for those things which mm. kind of all it's all contained and so and like you can't be unhappy because unhappiness makes people unhappy and is sort of against the project of happiness and um there's nothing wrong with the idea of happiness like that's never problematized in and of itself or or the the logic of happiness. This reminds me of this here, what, what he's referring to. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? God has rationalized this all good mm-hmm. through making evil and injustice external to it. So it's never blamed for its own contradictions. Right. This is where he was talk- talks about this more in the book uh, and other chapters. So it's like, the Odyssey is a really old theological problem, which is like, if God is good, 
why is there evil in the world? And then mm. you eventually go through different things um, and you sort of say, you rationalize it by saying that we just can't kind of, um, what does he say? We, can't, we just can't kind of see, uh, let, me, let me check the definition of, of theodicy, um, but that we just like, we can't see the God's plan or something like that. So it's not actually evil at all. Yeah, so theodicy means vindication of God. Answer the question of why a God, good God permits the manifestation of evil. That's resolving the issue of the problem of evil. And I think he talks about that happening in other contexts in a way because, like, so you say capitalism is good. Um, why is there um, so much unemployment? Well, it's because there isn't enough capitalism. We need more capitalism. So, like, right. the things that are wrong with capitalism cannot be of capitalism. So you, you externalize those things and then you prescribe, you prescribe more capitalism as a solution. Yeah, there's just a strange parallel that I have to think of and say, which is Annie Sprinkle's famous quote, which is, what's the answer to bad porn? It's not no porn. It's you make more in the way that you think it ought to be made. You don't make more of the bad stuff. You make more good stuff. But I mean, the same thing could kind of, it kind of comes up with this question around um, content and, you know, the algorithm, like, the idea of more and more content being produced. So if you, you know, the answer to bad content, let's say all this old sexist TV shows we used yeah. to have, so you make more and more quote unquote good or woke content. Right. And then you, but then how do you wade through it? How do you find the woke content you want? You know, you need to have an algorithm. Yeah. And, and you, and you might be like, and it might be a little bit arrogant or something to assume that the dynamics that are producing bad porn or bad TV are not also present in the way you tell stories or the way you um, depict sex um, with the camera. Like, it's as though it only, it's only the bad heterosexual commercial porn filmmakers who make the bad porn, and if it was just more queers doing it, then we would, then it would, you know, we would have what we need, kind of. Right. And that kind of closes off then one from looking at oneself clearly um yeah do you want to do the last paragraph here an additional thing an additional thing to consider is that much of this also emerges from two striking fallacies masqueraded as political life the first is the notion of perfect people its logic is that somewhere out there there's a set of people who got it i think this is what we were just talking about whatever the it yeah. is that we seek right Find them, imitate them, and we're good to go. It's even better when we supposedly are them. <laughs> the second is that we can achieve anything if we have a big enough crowd. In our world of optics and showmanship, the right achieves this audibility through making the loudest noise. Yes. Um, although I think the left is also doing that quite well lately. Yeah. The cacophony offers the illusion of size, and those who find size attractive will join them. The clearly scary thing about these two fallacies is that they are attracted to the full range of the political spectrum. Yes, totally. Yeah. It's, such, it's so well expressed there. I, I didn't know if I could add anything to that. Exactly. Yeah. But he says, that, as far as he considers the political, he says that these things are not the political and we mistake them for the political. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in what he considers to be the political. I'm not sure how much he'll go into it in this, in this article, because that's often the question I'm left with is when we could critique things like, well, this is not politics or this is not art or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, we, it's the challenge is to positively define then this thing. 
Um, yep. Yeah, but he does do that, I think, in the book. Um, let's 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 have a let's see if he come if he comes to it in this part. I'll read um, Medina if that's okay. Although I am entirely for shifting the geography of reasoning, I am also aware of the fact that in some places and contexts, it is too easy to misinterpret this decolonial gesture and let it be For example, in Russia, the appropriation of such rhetoric often takes place through near-imperial channels and utilizes the imperial difference, or in other words, the continuing imperial rivalry. For the last several centuries, Russia has been marked by this peculiar inferiority complex vis-a-vis the West, which has often resulted in, in a too zealous copying and reinstatement of the dominant geography of reasoning, with a secret and futile hope of being eventually offered a place there too. Um, the anti-Western imperial discourses were by default formulated as either carving a better space in the global hierarchy or, in more radical cases, as dismantling the existing hierarchy and building a new one with Russia in its center. The contemporary official anti-Western sentiment in Russia and a number of other post-Soviet and post-socialist countries often appropriates elements of decolonial and post-colonial discourses. It is possible that the, that the shift in the geography of reasoning can be also appropriated by these populist, nationalist, and imperial revivalist forces. In this situation, many critical minds opt for a liberal and hence, to some extent, pro-Western position and automatically reproduce the same modern colonial geography of knowledge. In the present situation, this often looks like the only accessible protest position. I am not happy with either of these stances. As they say in Odessa, both are worse. But then the question is, is there a way out of this binarism? either neo-imperial anti-Western nationalism or derivative liberal thought? And if and how can we defend our ideas and values from such an appropriation? Yeah, I mean, that's just fantastic. I think that really like goes to me to the heart of what we were dealing with in Signals and um, in the conference that we were part of. Um, and I think I did really feel called out, but legitimately so, you know, as as someone who was in um, a non-Western space that was meant to be a decolonial space and as like a white American bringing kind of queer theology mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. Yep. queer positive porn to the table, mm-hmm. I had to sort of be very careful with how I did that. And of course, I encountered, I mean, it was just absolutely the the perfect setting for encountering encountering some very serious issues um mm-hmm. which i don't i don't have um you know an answer to right no. where we where we had the choice of so do we create a space that's only flti and thus another space to watch porn and then another space that's um conceivably for men and then what happens in that male space or, yeah. you know, the non-FLTI only space. And yeah. what does that mean for the context of a Palestinian person, a Armenian person, an American person, an Australian person, you know, a gay person, a straight person, et cetera? Yeah, there's binarism, binarism as well that's, that's there. It's like, I mean, also that, that, like that, that, that our um, ability to speak and participate in something which was potentially political, but in the end kind of wasn't, 
um, is limited by us being coded as Western um, and maybe liberal or something like that. Um, yeah, that doesn't really, that didn't, this is a long, if anyone's listening to this, it's a long story about a, um, a dispute that opened up at a conference we were attending. Um, and, um, yeah, we, there was a, there, there was a, this sort of positioning between, like there was, there was different kinds of, um, positionings happening. There was people who saw themselves as, um, kind of post-Soviet. There are some people who saw them as kind of victims of Soviet imperialism. And then there's, there are basically everyone who more or less feels themselves to be victims of, of Western imperialism and rightfully so. Um, and then there was these, these different, these different fault lines came up in a, in a dispute around, uh, the behavior of person towards another person. And, um, without being more specific, uh, it was not easy to solve and everyone's positionality became, uh, as important or more important than anything they wanted to say, um, on the topic. The human world of meaning is communicable, which means people could participate in many elements and also distort them. I take your use of the verb to appropriate to mean to appropriate to mean something like hijacking a term for misguided purposes, which also includes erasing its history, as is what actually happens in processes of whitewashing history, for example. One of the things the right has always known is that the ideas for a humane future often lack material capital with which to present their position as normative. Investment in alternative sites and rebranding them could be quite effective. Thus, there are those among the right wing in the USA who call themselves revolutionaries. This also happens all over Europe, and it is so in parts of Africa and Asia. What's more, the imperial reach of capitalism is such that even revolution, decoloniality, and shifting the geography of reason could be commodified in the way icons of the past, ranging from Marx to Lobumba to Fanon to Guevara, could be placed on T-shirts and worn by the very kind of people who would have ordered their assassination. <laughs> there is no guarantee for what our ideas will unleash. I- ideas will unleash. We must have the integrity, if that were to come, to fight that as well. This was Fanon's point about decolonization. The skill set of those who decolonize a society may not be the best ones for building its future. Totally agree. To maintain their legitimacy, those, colonize, those decolonizers could end up yoking their society to the always presence of colonization. They then become those who must be overcome. I regard shifting the geography of reason as a task that, where healthy, creates possibilities. It is, however, a possibility of human re- reality. It becomes a mission then to, pro- to be proverbially, excuse me, it becomes a mission then to be proverbially realized or betrayed. The political issue, as I have been arguing, is about the commitments of those who understand its importance without guarantees. As shifting the geography of reason is part of this ongoing struggle, it could also open the door for different kinds of struggles to come, including nefarious forces of misrepresenting it. We should remember, for instance, that freedom is a word that suffers from similar challenges. There are those who use the term to block it. It is important for those of us committed to doing otherwise to use it, or at least through engaging in necessary practices to liberate it. So the first thing he says is he critiques the use of the term appropriation. Um, And he he does so by saying the human world of meaning is communicable, which means people could participate in many elements and also distort them. 
So he's sort of, I think he's sort of saying that that some kind of use, like using of elements that exist in the human world of meaning is, is going to happen and they can be used well, people can distort them. Um, so then he, but then I think he moves on from there to say that I think what you, when you say appropriate, you mean something specific, which is hijacking a term for misguided purposes, which also includes erasing its history. And so the idea is that decolonial thought can be misused by, by right-wing forces, which I think is something that's really worrying to someone living in a post-Soviet space where you're, you're on the kind of other side of the Western imperial binary. And then, so if you're not careful, you could end up that like anti-Western, anti-Western critique could become a tool for oppression and violence. We need to remain tough. And I think he, he, he sort of says we, we, we need to remain vigilant and tough to also, like, I think in our own self-critique as well. Um, I'm not really sure exactly why he doesn't like the word appropriation. I mean, I, I guess he's, the, the word appropriation in and of itself, he thinks is just, okay, things are communicable, but maybe we use more specific words like whitewashing or erasing history or what it's actually doing so the verb he probably i, th- I think he, maybe he, maybe he thinks it's too blunt too blunt a term to cover too many different kinds of things that are happening in the world of human meaning like kind of the alert to those um it's just like how do you again this i mean which i think he himself would 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 agree is this like how do you sort of say you know when is it being used well, and when is it not? Is it, is it only, I mean, sure. Yeah. You, you, it would be strange to have someone wearing a t-shirt of Guevara who would, who would potentially assassinate him. And yet, I mean, how do you like, <laughs> how do you actually measure that? I mean, that makes no sense in some ways, you know, because like history does matter. Context does matter. Actually, is there any, like, and what is the, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate and asking this, but like, what is the issue with commodifying Say and putting him on a T-shirt? What, like, how, how, you know, how far can we go with that? Is there something in that that makes that we would actually be striving for as as leftist revolutionaries, or is like, you know, in, in the sense that some of the ideals would be uh, widely supposedly accepted. Yeah. Although, of course, I mean, yeah, I guess, why would you buy a t-shirt if you're against capitalism? I mean, on the other hand, isn't that what we all do? Or many of us do who critique capitalism? I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if Chase face is on it or not. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's like kind of strange as well when these things kind of become over-signified, I think, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could make things really complicated, but you could just ask, does this serve the kind of society that we want to create? So, I mean, does seeing Chase face on a T-shirt on someone who doesn't understand the history of revolution or um, who actually runs a startup um, that's that's employing um, outsourced labor in, um, in another part of the world, does them wearing the T-shirt contribute to society we want to live in? But I don't think I don't think we can answer those questions. In the end. 
in an absolute kind of way or draw the or, or show where the line can be drawn except that i think he i think it's interesting how he points out like we do things we create things we create concepts we create ideas like freedom we create heroes like che and others and then that's that's that that, that necessarily will have unintended like um that there are no guarantees about like the direction the that uh politics will take or that are that they what 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 the repercussions of our actions will be and so then you have to continually engage in, in that struggle to liberate those those things from um from uh uses which are, from my perspective, harmful. I'm not sure if I completely understand where he's coming from on this. I guess, you know, he talks about processing and shifting and always knowing that something is shifting. So I, I guess I would, I would, I would, I'm trying to answer my own question here, which is I don't think he would advocate for a sort of let's go back to the purest form of freedom and remember to always use what we actually mean by it, because I think that's very dangerous territory, you know, or to say, let's only use Jay's face. If we know exactly what we're talking about when we represent his face and him politically, because Mm. I mean, I mean, not only because he doesn't represent, not everything Jay represents is great, you know, like, he's a complicated figure that has a lot comes with a lot of other things that we'd probably want to erase or put under. Right. But, um, but yeah, it's like, I, I, I don't think Lewis Gordon would say, okay, let's make sure to always keep those terms sort of clean either, you know, but it is interesting. Some of what he says here, it makes me, it, it, it almost goes in that direction where it's like, we have to be careful when we're talking like, when we have, when we talk about decolonization and then we have people who want to further the, go forward with the next process and they like end up recreating colonial projects or colonial yeah. dynamics. Um, yeah. You know, and is, is it like, is that out of a, is that like out of a um, effort to sort of remember what we mean by decolonization or is it actually yeah. because... Well, I, it's like it is in a way he's saying that and that the other on the other side, what I'm what I'm saying or what I'm puzzled by is actually I think that that's sort of contradictory to his essential argument, which is actually that it's not about remembering where we came from or going back to or getting back to the or, oh, right. yeah, origin, yeah. but rather that like this needs to be in like a continual process of re- redefining. Right. And so we need new people to kind of lead the way or yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think centers of knowledge to be able to actually do that. Yeah, I agree. I think what is it's the question is the question he's asking is, um, you know, like post-colonial discourse has been and can be appropriated for conservative right-wing re- reasons in the post-Soviet space. Right. Is that a problem? And he's like, yeah, that can happen. We have to remember that we can never. We can't determine from the place we are now how concepts will be used in the future. Um, and um, it's not even then, I think he's saying it's not even about like trying to go back to the originary definition of things, but of constantly, of a process of constantly, um, um, constantly evaluating these, uh, 
these 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 concepts as they, how they're being used and, and for what purposes they're being used and what 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 the what the what the outcome of the use is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Okay. The final paragraph is. Um, you want to read it? Okay. Um, it is odd that the Euromodern advancement of liberal theory, which I regard as ultimately subordinating politics to morality and individualism as part of the philosophical anthropology, has so many of us stuck in a binary emerging from the seating of the monarchists and the republicans in the French party. Some of the ways I have been talking about the right and left to make some more f- is to make some is to make more fluid understanding of this and for us to consider ways right-wing liberal centrism, libertarian left anarchism, and end-of-history utopianism. It occurs to me that we need also to move beyond such decadence and begin the work of producing kinds of actions premised on our being the conditions of different kinds of we, who may, should they look back at us, consider themselves fortunate through their lives, though their lives may be beyond our understanding. On this matter, I share Frederick Douglass's, Simone Wheels, and the Pakistani political theorist Asma Abbas's understanding of such work as not only political responsibility, but also a peculiarly political form of love. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like it, the political, it's, it's a funny, like, future-oriented political, which is like seeing yourself as the condition which allows something better in the future to emerge. In the same way that certain, we might look back and, and at certain moments, like, you know, for example, um, the Stonewall riot, because that's so often talked about, but... Um, it's a bit of a kind of cliche now, but we might look back on like the people who got up that morning and and went to Stonewall didn't necessarily couldn't necessarily know what the outcome of their actions would be, um, but they were political insofar as they created the conditions for, for a certain form of gay liberation, queer liberation in the present, um, and that's how we practice. Politics. It's not about going back to the past and creating something perfect past or um finding the good people in our world right now and and making ourselves the good people by doing actions which might become conditions for um for better futures it's not about for example creating a world of queers that look exactly like queers look today and that's the utopia right it's like it's it's like i'm doing things to create a world that i'm i can't even really imagine it and people who I might not really recognize as, you know, like, yeah, whose, whose identities I may not really even recognize. So by, like, by, by, think, by seeing ourselves as conditions, as kind of steps, rather than um, as, as, as the outcome of itself, we, can't, we somehow can never, we can never become too egoistic. Right. Um, we can never become too self-oriented or too um, communal in the way we do politics. Let's move on to uh, what I was suggesting was that we have eight minutes left, and I'd like to just like do a really quick 
sort of um, round where each of us just sort of says how this felt relevant to the work. Okay, yeah. Well, when we're looking at art and extractivism, we're thinking a lot about um, how we can escape um, from capitalistic dynamics. And and a lot of us, a lot of people feel like the utopian movements didn't really ever lead anywhere. And we're looking for something else, another way to understand what our work, our political work is. And I think that his perspective on, on... the work of politics being like to make oneself into a condition condition for a future, which is possibly better. Um, but we can never exactly know what the consequences of our outcomes will be, but to sort of put ourselves there in that kind of, it, and to embrace the existential uncertainty and at least step in the hope that it is the condition that someone else in the future relies on for, um, yeah. And I find that very interesting. So I, I think what's really valuable here is actually when we think about like knowledge production, I think that there is knowledge production that happens inside, I mean, classically inside of the ac- academia. Um, but there's also knowledge production that happens inside of the arts, or you could say there's artistic production. And I think you could easily use the same kind of metaphor to say, you know, who owns artistic production mm. and who is the arbiter of that kind of idea of what, what is art and where does it get centralized in terms of who is, mm. who is its author. And so if we use that, you know, as a, as a kind of, if we use his mapping, his remapping and think about, okay, how do we decenter yeah. and shift those centers of art making away, away from, you know, the art Academy and, and look for it elsewhere and do the work of thinking mm-hmm. about, um, yeah, like stepping away for a second and thinking, okay, if I'm, if I'm mm-hmm. a creator of art, I also need to be like soaking it in and figuring out where else it's happening that may not be in my milieu kind of, um, and also may not be codified as art. Right. Exactly. And to always be learning was a really key advice. And so that, that means always to be listening and, and also to be listening to someone who you might not right. even think of normally as having anything to say about this topic. Um, so like re- resensitizing ourselves to that, to different voices. Right. Which I think is, is very, very, very challenging. Um, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's something that's very, very easy. Well, not very, very easy to say, rather, but like it's it's easier said than done, um, because it's like so. How do you? How does one sort of then change the nature of interchange? Because I I wouldn't even want to say conversation because maybe the whole idea of conversation is a fallacy. You know, mm-hmm. um, the reading group itself, like what. <laughs> Where, where, where does exchange happen mm-hmm. meaningfully? And I don't think there's any one yeah. answer. I think it's just that it's very different for different people. It's great. It's a great, great question to kind of keep in the mind and think about. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. All right. Well, thank you very much for um, taking part in your energy that you gave to, to today. Thanks. You too. I really appreci- appreciate it. Yeah. Of course. You too. Thank you. And, um... Yeah, we'll stay, stay engaged. Our reading group takes place bi-weekly. To take part, 
please visit our website at www.hyenas.com. That's www.hyenaz.com.